Hello and welcome to another episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania, heard right here every Wednesday at 11 a.m. on WRIRLP 97.3 FM, Richmond Independent Radio. It's the day before Thanksgiving, so let's talk some turkey about this proposed Navy Hill development, shall we? This week on Municipal Mania, we're all here. Say hello. hello. Hey. Hi. Yeah. And we are here super stoked to talk about the North of Broad Development Project. Can you hear it in our voices? We're so stoked. (laughs) Um, It's a party. Yes. So specifically what we did is we solicited on social media, a a lot of different platforms, Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, questions that people have about the Navy Hill Project. So we actually got like 40 questions. I was actually really surprised and heartened by um, the amount of questions we got and uh-huh. engagement. So kudos to all of our followers. Yeah, it was really awesome to see it. Um, so what we're going to do is actually go through and we're going to try to upfront on this piece of it, kind of split this into two parts where we go through the facts about the project. Um, some of the questions that you guys have, we're not going to get through probably all 39 or 40 of them, um, but we're trying to answer as many of them as we can and put them into context of things. And in the second half, you know, there's some of these that were asked of us that we can't give definitive answers on, but I think that they're very big questions that we should be talking about. And if we don't have answers today, it's something that we should be getting answers to as a community, probably. So we're going to try to keep all of our opinions towards the end of it. Right. Because the goal really for us is that everybody who wants to support this project, who doesn't want to support this project, uh, should be able to make that decision based on analysis of the facts. And I think trying to make them more attainable to everyday people who haven't sat there and poured through 180 page documents for weekends in a row to try <laughs> to understand these things. You know, it's it's challenging. And I think these numbers are very, you're throwing out numbers all the time and it gets confusing and overwhelming um, and kind of obscures what are we really talking about. So that's really what our goal here is today. We're gonna do it kind of in a Q&A style. Uh, I think Melissa has the first community uh, sourced question for me. I do, I'm excited. Here we go. Is it true that the developers came to Stony first and only after that did he put out the RFP? And also, has there been any community engagement up to this point? Great question. What, what I did is I actually pulled together kind of a timeline because I think there's a lot of questions that have been around this and how did all of this come to be? So we're going to run through this timeline to give some people some dates and time references of things that happened. This is something that really goes back at least in this iteration of talking about the Coliseum to about June 2017. Mm-hmm. So in late June, a private development group called NH District led by Tom Farrell, CEO of Dominion, spoke about and announced that they aim to replace the Coliseum, um, that they would like to look at potentially proposing a project for that. And over the next few months, um, there were comments made, but there was nothing really specific that was put out there from the group other than the fact that it had formed and they'd been begun talking about this area. So then in on November 9th, 2017, uh, the mayor, LeVar Stoney, announced the North of Broad downtown redevelopment, and it was a 35-page request for proposal, also known as an RFP. In this document, there were goals that were outlined for what they were looking for in any type of proposal that they wanted submitted. The goals were to support the city's master plan, bring a new tax base to the city, include a piece of poverty mitigation, job training opportunities, community revitalization, infrastructure improvements, sustainable development, Richmond Public Schools, enhanced city brand, and minority business support. And this is actually a quote that I pulled from a Richmond Times Dispatch article from the next day, November 10th, 2017. Quote, the goals set out in this request echo the corporate effort led by Dominion Energy CEO Thomas Farrell this year to replace the Richmond Coliseum and revitalize the surrounding downtown area. The mayor made clear the city is driving the project through an open RFP process. 
So on that day, the uh, RFP was opened up to where anybody could submit a proposal as long as it addressed the things that were in uh, the goals stated Mm -hmm. and were around the 10 project blocks with the Coliseum downtown. During this piece, between the November 9th opening of the RFP and the deadline of the actual having to submit the RFP, there were also other deadlines that had to be met. So at the end of November, so November 29th, there was a deadline specifically for people that were interested in the project and submitting a bid to submit their contact information. So they had to submit their company name and basic contact information with an address. And there were 23 entities that submitted for updates, and this would actually let people get into an area where they were able to see the project details and the RFP, but then also be able to put questions in there. And when the answers were broad, they'd be able to see the answers. And the next deadline then after that would have been December 8th, I believe, 2017. And that was actually the deadline for them to submit their questions. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then within like a week or two, there were gonna be answers back from the city about the project. So something that's interesting here is actually that the 23 entities, that list of um, entities has not been released. Uh, Richmond Times-Dispatch did do a FOIA request in early December for the list of entities, but it was declined based on the grounds that it would impact negotiations. Hmm. Um, But Uh those 23 entities, we don't know how many questions were asked or what questions maybe were submitted by different entities or who before they decided to select their proposal. But then ultimately, February comes around and the RFPs are due. And there's one. And there's one. The actual RFP deadline was February 9th, which was the day that it had to be submitted and people had to pay a $50,000 application fee to submit their full proposal. It's a whole lot of money. It is. I think $50,000 if you want somebody to be investing. And in theory, for the scale of the project, it probably might speak to solvency of a company. You want to make sure that a company has some level of liquid assets and has some investability before you take the time to evaluate the project. Yeah, they couldn't do that with Stone Bruins. Oh, oops. Oh, oh, whoopsie. Sorry. That was an opinion. NH District Corporation actually hosted in January community workshops. And there were two weeks of community workshops, January 13th, 2018, and January 20th, 2018. And they were in locations across the city. So they were Cedar Street Baptist Church of God, Six Pick, Black History Museum, Belmont United Methodist Church, and West River Hills United Methodist Church. They also had an online submission process. At those meetings, they were presenting on things such as the TIF um, and what it was, what this project could encompass. And I looked and pulled up what the community feedback that they were looking for in this. Um, And so they had questions such as, what ideas do you have to address the project objectives? What would provide the most transformative opportunity for the project area and city? What would deliver the optimal return on investment? And do you support using tax increment financing to support this project? That was the feedback that specifically NH District Corp was looking for. So that kind of highlights, you know, the timeline of where things went and also NH District from that period up until the RFP that there was some level of community engagement from them specifically. Uh, We don't really have an idea of what happened with the 23 entities that had submitted for information up until the point where there's only one RFP, but it was an open RFP process where anybody could have submitted it had they wanted to. So hopefully that answers that question. All right, so the burning question, what exactly is this development, Jesse? Your guess is good as mine. No. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, other than more bistros. A good bistro. Gotta love a good bistro. How many people can fit into those bistros? Well, if it's a stone brewing bistro, a lot. Yeah. All All of the city at one time. Yes. So this project is actually, um, so 
this is I want to make a quick distinction here. So the North of Broad downtown development project is generally what the city put out as the RFP. And that's where you get into like the knob as a, as an acronym. You can get into NOBRO. Mm-hmm. Then you have what the uh, development group NH District Corp submitted right. to fulfill the RFP. And that's called Navy Hill. And Navy Hill is what this area downtown was previously called uh, when it was a residential area originally. I think there was a number that somebody had found that was around five or 600 residences were residents of color of Richmond were displaced Mm -hmm. through the initial development of this downtown area. So what we're looking at though is it's 10 project blocks where there would be development down here. Most of them are, are quote, north of broad. Uh-huh. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah, yeah. But there are uh, three of them that are south of Broad by a little bit there. And so within those 10 project blocks, this would include um, public investment into an arena where the Coliseum currently is. It would include renovating the Blues Armory, which the Blues Armory is a historic part of Richmond. And it also is where you may also remember Sixth Street Marketplace. Yep. The glass uh, food court is the only thing that remains. Yes, the only thing that remains. The greenhouse. (laughs) And also the other public investment piece of this would be raising Lee Street. So right now where it it sinks down, this would actually raise it up. And actually a fun fact I found out, the way that they would raise Lee Street up is using debris from the Coliseum to actually raise it and fill it in. Oh my God, that would be amazing because that- uh, Walking on the Coliseum trash. (laughs) That area, though, is trash. That area of Lee Street is total trash. So that that's just my opinion. So those 10 project blocks would have those specific pieces of the public investment. There would also be a new hotel down there, a kind of a higher-end hotel that would be supporting the Richmond Convention Center. Yep. Um, there would also be a, a lot of different mixed-use developments, meaning it would be housing, apartments specifically, uh, retail space, and office space and restaurants. And then also part of that would be creating a, a space for the GRTC transfer station. And the, and the red herring parking. Yeah, yeah. There, yes, if you actually look at some of the, if you read some of the plans to Franz Point inside of some of the buildings, they keep parking structures, which is interesting, so that they're kind of hidden from public view. Yeah. Um, and I didn't really see a whole lot of details as far as number of parking spaces, but yeah. there's definitely a parking that's involved in this. These are all things that the RFP asked for. Also, some of it is just what the private investment is going towards and what they're looking at to invest in this area. That's something that we can go into and explain probably shortly because it's really tied to how this is financed as why all of this stuff fits together into one lump project. But before we get into that piece of it, what I did want to kind of go through is talk specifically um, about the housing part of it, because we've had a lot of questions about that. Yeah, and those numbers have changed a little bit. Yeah. What the original proposal was, was for 2,939 apartments. Okay, so of the 2,939 apartments, 280 of those were going to be earmarked for affordable housing. So that means 2,659 apartments would be market rate apartments. That was the original proposal. Mayor Stoney pushed back and said that there needed to be more affordable housing that were added to this. So since then, there has been an additional 400 units that were added to the this package, so to speak. But what we're looking at as far as analyzing this project is only the first 280. 
because the additional 400 was from nonprofit investment. They're really seen kind of separately from what the analysis numbers are. Uh, they're seen as an additional and on top of. And as those are through things, I think it was um, Better Housing Coalition has some of those. So we don't have specifics on what those are as far as affordability. But of those first and initial 280, what we do know is that 97 of those are 60% AMI and 183 of those are 80% AMI. Can you tell people what AMI stands for? Yeah, let's break that down real quick. Yeah, so it is average median income. So basically what this is, is the number of AMI for Richmond City. It actually looks, it, they, they all look at regions. So it's not like saying Richmond City specifically. And this is AMI that gets defined it by the federal government. Mm -hmm. So this is not something that we necessarily have control over. The only thing we would have control over or locally would have control over is what percentage of AMI we're talking, we're about. talking about. Right. Mm -hmm. Knowing AMI is the region in Richmond that does actually encompass average incomes of the counties. This number is really a little bit inflated for what Richmond City itself would be. This is a, These are numbers that I actually am pulling from the Hunden Strategic Partners uh, report, the 180-page document. What this information gave us is it says the 97 60% AMI units, the median income, the baseline when these start to open in the beginning, um, the median income of individuals who were in those 97 apartments would be around $29,544. So then you have the 183 units and those, the average median income, which that's the 80% AMI of the people in those units would be $39,392. And then the average market rate or the, the 2,600 units, the market rate income of the people in that area would be 67,807. So the average rent of each of these based on the 60%, 80% or market rate AMIs, the average rent goes from the bottom of 739 to the 987 and then up to 1695. So that kind of gives you a picture of what this housing would look like. And that's specifically the, the 2,900 that's included in the 10 project blocks being proposed by private development. So what I did also go back in and look at and pulled from the same exact report is currently in the area of where this project is taking place, they do have some. There is some residential. It's not a whole lot of it. If you look in the, the book, it actually does tell you exactly how many units and everything like that. Right now, the... Occupancy as of quarter two, 2018, uh, was about 93% occupancy, so a pretty low vacancy rate in those markets. So that, that would, in theory, say that there is a level of um, need in the area, you would assume. Uh, the average rent of those was $1,184, and the average rent per square foot per is $1.53. Yeah, so residential market, the one thing we don't know about the current residential market is you don't know how much of the current housing stock is considered to be affordable. So when we talk about the average rents in that area, you know, on this one, I think analysis-wise, you can see that in 2018 in that area, it's 1100-ish, 1180, whereas these are ranging from 739 up to 1695. Uh, I did do a weighted percentage of. Uh, of course, you did. <laughs> I, I know. Of course. Because I knew everybody would want to know this because I did. So if I actually weighted the 200, the, the 2900 and said, because of the, the percentages of what the affordable pieces of this is, you mm -hmm. know, what is the actual average 
per square foot cost of this housing of the baseline. And I also did it for the average rent amount and then also the weighted median income just to have an idea of, you know, with people who are on the, the lower end of that spectrum being a minor percentage, how much does that impact the averages, which should speak to kind of being able to compare it to we don't know how much of the residential market in this right now is affordable. So that was a lot of words. Here's the info. <laughs> so of the 2900, the average weighted per square foot uh, cost is a dollar and 82 cents. Uh-huh. The weighted average rent would be 1619 per month and the weighted median income would be 64,774. So you'll notice a lot of those numbers are more like the average mm-hmm. uh, market, the market rate apartments yeah. and that's just sheer volume. Uh, so I think that that does though speak to probably giving an example of perspective mm-hmm. of what you are bringing into the area. Yeah, so it's higher end, y'all. Uh, so I want to make a point that I live about a mile maybe from this development and my mortgage is many hundred dollars less. Many hundred dollars less. <laughs> than yeah. this average. I did want to ask too, it, within the the plan, the proposal, it does say what this is. This area is marketed towards, the that people is, that this is marketed towards. That is actually a really good point because this is something where um, I think that that's excellent context. And let me find this. So I'm pulling this from the Hunden Strategic Partners report, and it's in the executive summary, which is like within the first two or three pages of this huge document. So it shouldn't be too hard for you guys to find if you really want to read it. And so what it says here is the goal of this project is to revitalize the downtown neighborhood of Richmond, north of Broad Street, Navy Hill. The project also has the goal of reconnecting Jackson Ward to downtown, something that has been attempted in the past but has been inhibited by Lee Street sitting below grade. The MCV campus of Virginia, Commonwealth University VCU, and the Virginia Biotechnology Research Park, both north across Lee Street from the development site, are forces in the area, bringing an increasing number of professionals to the central business district north of Broad Street. Development such as is proposed in the project aims to serve as a catalyst to keep these professionals downtown outside of working hours by offering residential options as well as retail, entertainment, and dining. Uh Additionally, the office space planned, much of which is to be tailored for VCU research purposes, could serve to augment the already existing professionals in the area to absorb the new resources purposed in the project. So they are very clear and upfront about who they're marketing the residences. And I appreciate that, to be totally honest, because a lot of people will get all hung up on the details or they'll hear those buzzwords and they'll say, oh, affordable housing. And then they get pissed off at the numbers. But it's you didn't get hoodwinked with the information because they told you up front exactly who this was targeting. And they even went through grave amount of detail in this report. What we're referring to for the housing situation is, I think, chapter eight. Yes. And I mean, they went through and gave you painstaking details about the income and what it was going to cost, which is briefly the summary we just gave you. So I appreciate that because one of the things we scream all the time is transparency, transparency. So we might still have questions, but at least we got very clear answers on a lot of what they put out. Yeah. Yeah. I think we'll, we'll probably have some comments about that in a little bit also. Yeah. That's really with the housing situation. I think that that answers kind of in depth the question of that piece of it. When we talk about the office space, so there's a couple of the office projects or pieces of this. So one of them is to have a single tenant, mm-hmm. which is it's VCU neurology department or neuroscience department, I believe, mm-hmm. yeah. um, to have their own like wing is building a piece of that part of it. The other office space is going to be, you know, open tenant. It can be built out in whatever number of tenants. There's not really anybody specific targeted for that. The other part is retail space and restaurant space. And again, that's really based on 
having the different businesses down there in the report itself it actually does analyze what's currently down there and one thing that it really pointed out is that everything that's down there is based on working business hours and then it closes and it closes everything shuts down yeah yep so this is also goes back into the point about you know what 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 is the goal of this and it's to create a reason for the people who are working down there for them to also not just work down there live down there yeah. and hopefully create a bunch of new revenue in the end of it ultimately for richmond so when we talk about what these look like i just went through some of the uh, the numbers with the housing i actually pulled some of the similar stuff to give you an idea number wise for the office rental rates and everything and this is also a piece of knowing what these numbers look like when you're analyzing all of this it looks like the office rental rate that they start with as a baseline for the space would be 30 dollars per square foot as a triple net lease it says that the average income of workers in the office space would be about fifty thousand dollars six hundred fifty thousand fifty thousand six hundred and fifteen if i'm going to be like overly quoting it but 52 cents i know um and also <laughs> the average number of office workers they're projecting when they're getting the numbers of workers is they're actually just doing they're doing a calculation of one worker per 200 square feet of office space yeah so that's how they're looking at those numbers specifically breaking them down currently i, I quoted previously the 2018 quarter two numbers and i do have that for the office market so the occupancy in 2018 quarter two is 90.6 percent occupancy rate and it, it averaged rental rate of 24 dollars and 16 uh cents yeah. per square foot then the other piece of it is the retail restaurant space so in the project it's saying the project spaces would be 22 dollars per square foot they're also i thought this was interesting the calculation is 220 dollars of sales per square foot is how they're figuring out the, the estimated amount of sales but what's interesting to me is that they also include an idea that only 50% of it would be net new to Richmond. So for example, instead of saying that all of this is going to be brand new brought in, this is going to assume the numbers we're looking at, they do assume that some of this is going to be people coming from over here to placing their business here. So I think that's like a, that's such an interesting point that they are recognizing the fact that maybe there isn't, it's not overinflating the numbers to some extent. Mm. Also selfishly, I think it'd be really nice uh, to have a place we could go get a drink after city council. I mean, you know. you know, sometimes we kind of need those, and it is desolate when it comes to watering holes. And so now and the uh, the current retail market, as of the 2018 quarter <laughs> two, uh, it's 94% occupancy, and it looks like it was about $15 uh, per square foot for rental rates. Cool. Um, yeah, you know, that again, we can't really tell you exactly, you know, what kind of office space as far as like, what's the quality, what can it be used for, but it gives you kind of an idea of portraying what this is downtown project wise. Yeah. Now, one question that we also have, I think a lot of people have is, you know, when does this stuff start? What is going on here? Basically, the construction on this project would look like some of it actually starts in 2019, but construction for all of it would be carried out to where it would ultimately hopefully be finished by 2024. But this all hinges on whether city council approves any of this. Right. So mm -hmm. this is all, you know, projections currently. Yep. Yep. And so that's the, the, in theory, is that there would be basically construction downtown. And so when we talk about whenever you hear those, that 30 year period, where they say that this is the projected amount over 30 years, that 30 year period actually starts at the end of the construction. So there yeah. you go. So just heads up, like just thinking through, you know, when, are, when will we have this stuff coming online, it would be progressively throughout the next four or five years. So naturally, the next question is how we're going to pay for this. But I think people already know a little bit. So let's talk about the TIF first. Can you define, give us a nice layman's term of what the TIF means? And no, it's not my best friend from high school. Is it, a, is it the better version of a JPEG? No, it's not that. It's a whole text district. Let's talk about it. 
Yeah. So a TIF. A TIF, it stands for Tax Increment Financing. And basically, uh, in concept, what it does is it draws a line around an area of land within a city and it looks at and takes a snapshot today about what the real estate assessment is of the properties that are within the TIF district. And it puts a freeze on the general fund basically of, well, the only amount of tax revenue that's going to be credited to the general fund is where you stand today as far as that amount based on the real estate assessments of today. So then what happens is that once that's in place and that says that that's where the financing district is, as time goes and as the value of that increases and the value of that land could increase because of just natural inflation, it could increase because of a a bunch of new stuff being built down there or a, a combination of those things. And as that amount grows, the amount that's above and beyond where we froze it as of the 2018 values, that amount would actually go into a separate pot of money, which would then fund and help fund the uh, public responsibility of this entire project. So I know that some people have thought that there's going to be a specific increase in tax rate on this area. That's not how it works. My thing was is that a lot of people think that the TIF actually involves a tax break. So it really doesn't. So the reason that people think that, so part of uh, getting into like the specifics about what this district is. So there's a primary zone and then there's a secondary zone. And the primary zone is actually uh, the assessed value of it in 2018 is $1.9 billion. Only 58% of that is taxable. Um, And it's about $11 million in real estate taxes to the city as of today. The secondary zone, which is a little bit further outside of the project, it is $807 million in value, 91 one percent of that land is taxable and it's about 9.4 million dollars in real estate taxes today so that's what that really looks like as it is today part of the reason that the, the, there's that primary and secondary zone and why it's so large is because that only 58 percent of that primary zone is taxable but there is this one part that we're not really speaking about in this it's including the dominion towers and into that into that tiff zone so the dominion towers there's two dominion towers one of them is existing the other one is brand new build and it should be opening here coming soon in the next couple of years. Right beside the existing building. Yep. And there Talk is about OJRP for everybody who wants to know. Yeah. The existing Dominion Tower, there's some talk about they might renovate it, they might keep it as is. At one point they were talking about possibly like building all new. Um, that has been still kind of up for debate. They haven't publicly announced what they want to do with it. Those two towers, what you have to assume is that as soon as that that tower that's being built comes online, that's going to be a boom in a real estate assessment uh, for the city period. So what they're saying is that these Dominion Towers are going to be part of this tip. And the reason it's not actually a tax break because that the frozen amount today is just what goes in the general funds. That this continues to assess in value over time. Dominion and everybody else will continue to pay their normal real estate taxes as they continue to accrue over time. It's just on the back end, the dollars that the city's already getting today are going to keep going to the city's general fund. Any of those new dollars are going to go into the TIF district that helps pay for the public part of the development project. So no matter what, Dominion's still going to have to pay their taxes. Just the the new, the extra part, the, the part beyond what they're paying now it's just going to go into a cute little fund and that's a part of what's going to fund this uh this project yeah it's not a a tax cut you guys they hear that cap and they're like oh uh, that's a cut 
Well, and they also hear the CEO of NH District being the CEO. Tom the, Farrell. Tom Farrell, yeah. yeah. So there's... Just, yeah, Dominion. So that always makes everybody go, ooh. Give up. Just quit. Because in this life, you can't win. Yeah, you can try. But in the end, you're just going to lose big time because the world is run by the man. Who? The man. Oh, you don't know the man? Oh, well, he's everywhere. In the White House, down the hall, Miss Mullins. She's the man. And the man ruined the ozone, and he's burning down the Amazon, and he kidnapped Shamu and put her in a chlorine tank, okay? And there used to be a way to stick it to the man. It was called rock and roll. I mean, people aren't yeah. justifiably it's on guard. Understandable. Mm-hmm. That's why we're talking about it. Mm-hmm. The Dominion Towers, they actually, they, they look at all these numbers when they talk about, like, hey, this is how much, it's always over 30 years. And so the Dominion Towers, actually, to give you guys specifics, both of them um, are estimated to be $278 million in net increment over that 30-year period. Uh-huh. So that's how much of the Dominion Towers would be going towards that TIF district. Just as like an FYI. I, I looked up in the, the HSP report of that TIF zone, the primary and the secondary zone, of what those would look like in 2048 without the project development. So like without all this project, what would the real estate taxes look like in 2048? So the primary zone would actually be about $20 million in real estate taxes. And the secondary zone would be about $37 million in real estate taxes. So if this new, all of this new development doesn't happen at once as planned, um, what they're projecting out is that by, by 2048, the amount in that area would be um, a pretty sub- significant number uh, by the end of that period, even without it. But then when you start to look at what would this be with the, with the project, mm-hmm. um, that's where you start to see a lot of the the larger, larger numbers. Yeah. But yeah, there is growth and you can go in and kind of, it's towards the last five pages actually of the HSP report if you really want to dig into those numbers. Does that answer all the questions about TIFF? I, I think yeah. it does. The cranberry sauce, we're having mashed potatoes. Ooh, the turkey looks great. Thank you for loving me. Glenn. Thank you for being there. Please. You You are in the middle of a jam-packed episode of RVA Dirt's Municipal Mania on WRIRLP 97.3 FM Richmond Independent Radio. The cranberry sauce, we're having mashed potatoes. Ooh, the turkey looks great. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for being there. Please. Thank you for loving me. Everyone's thanking. The whole world's thanking you, thanking us for thanking you. Kill the turkey. So now we can talk about how that fits into the funding of this project, because that's the that's the million dollar question that everybody wants to know. I'm sorry, billion, one point five billion, one point seven billion, seven. Gobble gobble, let's make it full throbble. (laughs) Did you say full throbble? I think I may have. How how are we how are we gonna pay? Yeah. So how does it all fit in? So uh, there's three sources. There's really three funding sources that come into play here. Uh, there's private investment. There is new revenue generated by the project. And then there's that whole real estate revenue from the TIF district that we just it's talked about. The TIF. So the private investment is, I believe it said like $1.1 billion from investors. And that's going to go to building the housing and also the Hyatt Regency Hotel at Greater Richmond Convention Center. Then you have new revenue generated by the project. So this is specific to the 10 project blocks we were mentioning where development is happening. As you're building office space, retail space, restaurants, 
there's going to be sales tax generated. There's going to be meals tax generated. When you open the Coliseum, admissions tax generated. There might be parking revenue, arena revenue, lodging taxes. There's all of this stuff that when you build new things, that's new revenue. So that's going to be set aside to help pay towards the um, public part of this project. And keep in mind, there are some of these things that I just mentioned that are only going to happen, like, for example, to touch the sales tax that passed through the General Assembly would have to approve it. Greater Richmond Convention Center Authority actually has first dibs on the lodging tax. So these things are, are obviously fluctuating just based on, first of all, like the ability to get these new units and things rented out, people down there to start buying stuff, but then also making sure that there are other needs in the city. So this is kind of a fluctuating pot of money um, that would help go towards paying this off. Then you also have the TIF district, which would be the incremental real estate revenues. So anything that, again, is above and beyond where we're freezing those uh, numbers today in 2018, which would include, obviously, from the new development, the increased value of the current zones, and then also the Dominion Towers would go towards helping pay back the public portion of this project. So as I mentioned, the public portion of the project was the arena, the Blues Armory, and raising of Lee Street. That all, the goal that they're actually having is that uh, they actually want to try to pay those down faster. So this gets where to the bonding conversation. Mm -hmm. So bonds, the easy, this is not a great um, technical explanation of what bonds are, honestly, but it's the best way or easiest way for us to like as individuals probably understand them. Talk about it, yeah. It's like getting a loan. So you issue bonds and you're getting the loan based on, and you can only obviously get a loan if you have what? Income. Right. Um, and so that's where you get to where you have to have the new revenue to be able to get these bonds. And then also though to pay for the bonds obviously has to right. come through. So these bonds are non-obligation revenue bonds. So a non-obligation revenue bond means that if this project does not generate the revenue that's needed to pay off the bond and make the bond payment that year, there is no moral or legal obligation for the city to have to make a payment huh. on it. Sounds too good to be true, but okay. So Sounds like it should have been the Redskins deal, but go ahead. Huh. Yeah. So this is where, you know, the if there was a default on the bond, um, it would be the risk of the bondholders, and it would not directly impact the city's ratings, like bond ratings. So when we say who the bondholders are, this is still up for debate. The bondholders, are, are this people that could issue the bonds could be the Economic Development Authority. Mm -hmm. Oh, our, our best friends. <laughs> that's where it, it's usually an, an intermediary that's like facilitating it. So it could be the EDA. They have said that it might be the EDA. They haven't said who it's going to necessarily be. That's actually going to be the bondholder. But ultimately, at the end of the day, it, it could be any number of people and entities, I think. Yeah, basically, so that's... Um, the ownership of the land and everything actually still stays with the city. So that's one big question that people have when we talk about the training camp deal is that the EDA actually owns that land and it's a whole convoluted thing where they own everything and we can't really force them to do anything unless they want. It's That's a whole thing. The the way that it was, I've heard city officials speak on it and specifically the um, non-recourse revenue bonds is that who the bondholders are in this case, the city would still own the land. It would be more of like a pass-through situation. The city would still ultimately own the land. So it's a little bit different from the training camp. Personally, I kind of would, with how much uncertainty 
they've said about without without knowing exactly who it's going to be, it's kind of hard to describe exactly how that relationship would work, honestly. Right. But the basic principle here is that as non-recourse revenue bonds, if there's no revenue, the bonds don't get paid. So I think that there is a level of obviously desire to try to get it all done uh, on time and opened up on time, which is a positive thing. But also I think that that puts in perspective that part of the reason that the TIF is so large is to and, make sure they got that pillow. Right. Because ultimately a bond is it's a risk. So if you're out getting a loan, your loan pr provider is going to evaluate you and your credit score and your ability to make payments and your income with the risks. Yep. It also depends on what type of loan product you're getting. Yep. And then that's one piece with with this type of bond where they evaluate the risk and they want to look at, you know, what is the reality about this district and what are the chances of the bond getting paid. So another feature with this type of bond is that the surplus of the, the increment districts that we're looking at, so the local revenue generated and also the TIF, anything that goes above and beyond paying off the, bare, the, the minimum payments on those bonds, 50% of that surplus has to go to paying off the bond early. And so that early payment, when we talk about what is the number of this public amount, so $350 million is the public investment amount. That's what we would need to get the bonds for. Over time, plus interest of the 30 years of payback, we would ultimately be paying $620 million for that $350 million. Mm -hmm. And again, that's the arena, that's Lee Street, that's the Blues Armory. If the city is able to pay back on an earlier schedule, that could actually save the city $125 million. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it, that would be paying more like $500 million to get the 350 versus the 620. The goal here being obviously to make the, the actual payment there, but then also have enough in this surplus where 50% of it gets us out from the bonds earlier. Then this other 50% that we have out there, that's where we get into all of these other new percentages that right. just came out. This is the remaining 50%. So when we talk about the surplus, um, we've already said that 50% of the surplus is going towards paying back the bonds. That's an underwriter requirement of the bonds. Then the other 50% of it, Mayor Stoney just came out that and said and made an announcement that there would be an assignment of that remaining 50%. Originally, it was just going to all go to the general fund um, if there was nothing done with it. So now, though, 50% of, of the remaining surplus would go towards schools. And then 15% would go towards the housing. Um, and that housing is some of those, I believe, the 200 other units that aren't encompassed in some of this analysis. And then 1% would go to arts, and then the rest of it would go to the general fund. So if I'm going to make it all make sense for all of us so that we're not like swimming in these numbers, what this really accounts to if we're looking at 100% of the surplus is that 50% of the surplus would go to paying off the debt, 25% would go to schools, 17% to the general fund, 7.5% to housing, and 0.5% to arts. arts. So that's once I adjust for yes. looking at the whole pie. That's how that would ultimately get paid off. The reason that we kind of, I've heard people question the Dominion Towers is that ultimately to start the bonding, you have to have the revenue. You have to see that the revenue is coming in yeah. to show people when you're going to be able to pay it back. And that's a large enough. There's two brand new buildings. They're already probably, I think, the highest taxpaying buildings in the TIF district, I believe. Yeah. I, I think they are with their it's with their additional building. Eighth and Main is theirs too. Yeah. Um, basically, the whole thought process is that this is a known quantity that's about to be coming up. So it's something that we could start talking talking about now of yep. talking to the bondholders about knowing this is coming online in this year. Yep. This is the projected assessment. This is where we're going to get the revenue from it. And so then you could actually start bonding off of that to start the project. 
So the way to think of this TIF really is to think of the reason you have to have all of this together is because to get the public amount for the arena and the improvements to the Blues Armory of the city property there and also Lee Street development, you have to somehow get new revenue into this district. And so the private investment of $1.1 billion into the housing, the office, the retail, the restaurant space is really giving the boom to the area that would be able to allow the city based on new revenue to have the arena, to do the renovations and to do everything else and pay it off at a, a lower risk because they're using revenue bonds to the actual city. So it's kind of like a snowball when you think about it. You've got to somehow get that all ball rolling. And the Dominion Tower is that like spark that gets all of the development rolling as far as the city public investment comes into play. So if we're going to talk about things like I know there's questions that we got about why can't we do one and like why can't we just break up the land, divide the parcels, sell it off, do the TIFs, da 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 da. It's in theory you could it's the issue is that this is the project that's presented and it's the only project that was presented and the only one that we know of right and so so this is the proposal that met the rfp and the rfp that was submitted and put out from our mayor had that there was going to be an arena or a coliseum component to it and then this whole project together is a way to pay for it so that's the way i kind of think of the housing and the hotel and everything is that they've gone through and identified that there's a need in this development that's this is what this the, the company has done in each district is nh district has looked at this area they looked at a project rfp that our mayor put out and they have basically said hey we've evaluated this area and there's a need for housing for people that already work down there there's a need for them to have places to eat and buy things the greater richmond convention center has a hotel need all of these things by the way are actually established in the hundred they, they talk about in the hsp report the hundred strategic partners report in some of the numbers they've gone through and looked at what is the current cost of the coliseum and all these different events and they've the nh district has established how to make it happen for the public piece of the project that the mayor's really requesting happen and they're also presenting in it the way to finance it, which is the TIF, which is, involves the housing. In theory, yeah, you, you could absolutely sell, have the parcels and have individual development do this on their own. And you probably wouldn't get a public-owned arena. Um, it might happen over time in different time periods. There's not as much direct control over it. You might not have that same boom. But ultimately, uh, the, what we're put in a position is is evaluating this based on, okay, either we're going to do this project that was presented and accept the demographic that this is going towards, accept the, the end result of the project, because we're, this is a way to get new revenue to be able to do these things. And that's where we can get into. I know that one question I want to make sure that we at least read out loud as we've talked a lot about different things here. Is it the one that I'm staring at? Chelsea's. <laughs> Yes. This is uh, a question that Chelsea Higgswise is asking at every single meeting that they're having about this development. That we've talked briefly about before. Uh, what is being done specifically for the relatives, for those that were displaced when the interstate destroyed Navy Hill? And without that plan, uh, it seems that the developers are whitewashing the experience that put poverty in Richmond where we are today. Huh. Yeah. So it that's a, that's a tough <clears throat> one. And they don't have an answer yeah and you know i think that that's where it's when one question that we got is also about um evaluating this project and how to evaluate it uh you know we kind of ran through and explained at this point you know what is the project what is the financing piece of this and actually i'm going to try to answer as many of these questions in writing for you guys as possible um and hopefully you can have that up either already or by the end of the show um (laughs) 
future Jesse by Wednesday. And <laughs> yeah. And I think when you're evaluating this, when we talked about the numbers, I, I explained earlier that these are projections based on averages and estimates of things. So this all is reliant on the success of getting it all online in time, make, which involves construction, making sure there's enough labor. It also relies on getting all of these office spaces and, and retail spots and restaurants rented, getting people to move into the apartments. So there are absolutely those predications of it. The non-revenue bond strategy means that there is not the direct risk to the city for if this project uh, doesn't go according to plan. But of course, when you're looking at it and looking at what does a TIF district do and looking at what does a uh, as far as like the caps that you're putting in there and how that all works like obviously if things don't go according to plan you are kind of capping that area if you don't get the surplus but i also think that an important way to look at this is through the lens of this is a proposal from a developer who's saying these are the ways that i'm going to address the questions you asked and to consider that it's a question of figuring out what are the benefits to the city so you know we talk about there is money to schools and that 25 percent of the surplus would go to schools there's no real hasn't been said if it would go to construction versus just general uh information or sorry general like instruction and everything but there's also the meals tax so as you raise revenue with the meals tax and people are buying more food down there that's 1.5 percent that is going to construction no matter what um so all of these little things and figuring out at the end of the day is is this project that we can see the need it's going to fill and it's going to change the face of this area downtown are these things that the benefits of raising enough revenue um, quickly to be able to do a number of things that people in the city say that they want to have happen. It's a cost-benefit analysis for everybody to me is basically where I'm getting to. Uh-huh. And figuring out, you know, what are the ways of how can – somebody mentioned in one of the questions um, a community benefits agreement. Would they be willing to look at a community benefits agreement? And to me, looking at what is a community benefits agreement, you know, figuring out where is it in this plan to Chelsea's question that you're including space for the people who have been displaced here within each piece of this project. You know, where is it that how are people going to continue to feel comfortable of all income levels when you're changing the face of an area that um, in some of these meetings is referred to as a, quote, wasteland. But there are people down there with the transfer station, with the Department of Social Services that are going to the John Marshall Courthouse. How are they going to continue to feel comfortable in this area when you change the landscape of it? And how do we articulate ways through if it's a community benefits agreement or just having the continued dialogue and asking a lot of these questions? Uh, how are we going to accomplish that? Yeah, that was a lot. Awful lot. I just feel like it's important that through this process, and that's why it's important that Chelsea keeps saying it because we said it before. We all keep saying it. We all keep saying it. You know, the research company that Tom Farrell put together to create this proposal is is NH District Court, Navy Hill. So you intended to at least name this area after Navy Hill. And you went through a lot of detail to, you know, detail all these numbers and find the right bonds and work this plan out. But you failed to include anything in the plan to actually talk about Navy Hill or can we get a plaque? Can we get a... a, a, Oh, but there's one little historical marker there now that's buried. Yeah, can we get a marker? Can we get something? I mean, it just seems like, you know, you went that far down into the weeds to describe to us 
you know, about the housing and, and all this research on the, what's there and what you want to put there. But you originally planned to call this Navy Hill clearly because of this, you named the company that, but there's not any more detail about what you want to do to commemorate this neighborhood that Richmond already pulverized. And is this just kind of... And I'm sorry, but honestly, in my opinion, it needs to go further than just commemoration also, because I think oh, that... Oh, it does, yeah, but I, I'm at just, least, I will, I'll at least take that. Oh, I I, you know? I really think that, you know, I think it, it, it not just though for, I think, commemorating the people who, who were displaced originally, but mm-hmm. also, you know, writing that wrong of... They can't write that wrong. But, but I know they can't ever fully write this wrong, but also looking at, of seeing, you know, what what did they do wrong previously and how can you make the best of the situation? So for example, creating those spaces of, you know, where is the minority, we see minority participation in the construction. Mm -hmm. Where's minority participation in also the office space that's going to go up for rent. Mm -hmm. Where's the minority participation with the retail space, the restaurant space. You know, these are Mm -hmm. things that we did see in the sixth street marketplace um, that were actual requirements and having as prospecting people and trying to get people and place them into the businesses there. And, you know, I think that there's commemoration that needs to happen for the area that's down there. And it can't just be saying it and calling it that right. and just renaming it that because there were 600 families that are displaced. And the reason that people call this a wasteland is because of that displacement that ultimately happened and destroyed people's homes and intentionally created that poverty. So I think yeah. when I say righting the wrong or it's also figuring out how do we compensate for making sure that it doesn't further cause that problem by writing in language, this is the space that we see for people that are existing in Richmond while we appeal to a large, broad Other demographic. That come in, yeah. And, and I don't know, think we should just, we, we can't keep settling for commemoration of plaques, that's all. No, we can't. You're right, we can't. But it, damn, at least give us that. Like, I mean. That should at least be like already in there. Yeah, that's what I'm saying. It should be, you went through so much detail to do this and you didn't even throw that in. And one of the other issues, and I didn't, we heard a little bit, we got a couple questions about that, but, you know, we're talking about destroying, you're talking about cre- like destroying so much, you know, property right then just to start this construction, which is a main area where we have a lot of homeless people that live there. Mm-hmm. And so it would have been great to even hear, you know, at least some type of concern about that displacement as well, because even though they don't maybe... I mean, that's where they live. You know, I don't know. I, I, I don't know. And we and we didn't get to the question, do we actually need a new arena? <laughs> I mean, to be honest, you've got one of the, what, what makes this whole subject really sticky is the fact that people got to understand in order for us to be able to fund the schools or fund really anything in the city, we've got to create revenue. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things that, you know, and that's I guess that's why Richmond is so skeptical of trickle down. But really, that's you've got to bring the revenue in in order to create the tax money. It's just got, it's got to come. And so if you can kill two birds with one stone, cool. But you don't want to kill two birds with one stone, gentrify a, a whole area, you know, obliterate a black neighborhood <laughs> and, and stomp on the homeless people like you know, I All mean, people using public transit. Yeah. I mean, it's just kind of like I'm not saying that's what's happening, but, you know, it's just that's why people are so very. But I, I think it's, it's not it to me. It doesn't have to be what happens. 
And no, it doesn't. It's, we it's, don't even have another. They, they didn't give us anything else. They said it's this or nothing. There, I'm sure there but, are probably but, other things. But, but. no, no, but, but what I'm saying is that I don't think that it has to end up in the place. I think the reason that people have these concerns is uh-huh. because historically, yep. that's what's happened in Richmond time and time again, yep. is that that's what we see is when we buy into it, the trickle-down theory doesn't actually work. And I think that now we have this new project and regardless of like you know the merits of this project or if people agree with this project or not or it's not just about the fact that there's not an alternative it's a question of is this is there a way to make it to the implementation of this project isn't the same implementation of before because what are the things that we're concerned about it, it is the fact that it's it's a corporation that's coming in and you know it's going to raise potentially like it might have this impact where it raises rent prices it might push people out it's going to change the face of the area down there a number of different things but you know how what are the ways that you could address it uh-huh. if you're willing to say we need this new revenue right we need to have this boom and you know in the absence of other projects that we can't coulda woulda shoulda on those you know that's where we have to get back to figuring out that this is these are the two choices here. And then I think there's also a big question of how do we also make sure that we don't end up in a situation where we only have one RFP in the future? Maybe, I don't know. Right. Um, <laughs> yeah. You think? Hypothetically you know. speaking. Because, yeah, it, it's frustrating, I think, for people and, you know, figuring well, yeah. out. When you feel ha- like you don't have enough options, mm-hmm. when we do have a lot of distrust around shiny projects here, <laughs> it just it does seem like favoritism to a lot of folks. To not have anybody else jump in and be involved or even want to propose anything. So, yeah, we don't have the answers to everything, but I do hope that this helped. Because it def- this definitely helped me. I'm glad. You know, going through it. So I do hope that it helps a lot of our listeners as well. Each one, teach one. <laughs> the more you know. Ding, 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 ding. So that about wraps it up, I think, today. Uh, I'm sure, hopefully, by this time that you're hearing me say this, I'll have uh, typed up all these questions and tried to condense them into some answers for everybody. Because we did try to um, get through as many as possible, but, you know. Yeah, you know, um, and hopefully kind of hearing. 40 questions in 55 minutes is something. Yeah. <laughs> oof, 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 especially for something like this. But hopefully we covered a lot of the principles and theories behind it all and keep talking about it. I just want to reiterate, like, ultimately the only way that this project is going to be something that is um, – the best, the only way that, the best thing in Richmond to me is always the people. And the way that we're going to have these projects, and no matter what project it is, is through public input and asking questions um, and being critical and coming up with solutions also. I mean, those are those little things that I, my favorite questions were probably the ones that were also like halfway suggestions of could we do this? How right. about this? And I, I hope that are also other elected officials come up with ideas of also how to advocate in the process and figure out like what. What are things we can ask for? Um, if it's not a whole other project, because no one submitted an RFP, what can we ask for? And then judge it based on those merits. All right, Richmond. Well, that's your numbers overview on what this project is. Based on the information that we have now, what this project is, how we're going to pay for it, and what a TIF is. And here we are. So now it's time to use your constituency and call your people, talk about it. Um, engage us on all social media at RVA Dirt, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, all that good stuff. We're working through it. Yeah. RPS is still not fully funded. We're working on it. Flint still has dirty water, and Richmond is, Richmond is definitely still racist. 
Boom.